HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, and my guest today is the wonderful Marion Nessel. She hardly needs any uh, any introduction, but I'll give you one anyway. Um, Marion is the Paulette Goddard uh, Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, uh, the department that she chaired from 1988 to 2003, and a Professor of Sociology at New York University. Her many, many books include Food Politics, Safe Food, Pet Food Politics, and more recently, Why Calories Count, and her last one, which was Eat, Drink, Vote. I'm sure there's another one in the pipeline, right, Marion? <laughs> I do. I'm working on a book about food advocacy. Excellent. Well, that's exciting, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it when it's done. It sounds like you're still writing it, so maybe a year down the pike, right? Or two. <gasps> Don't say that. I know how hard you work, and I also know how fast you work. Um, so today, Marion, our topic is something that I have been longing to delve into for the longest time, and that is the designation GRAS, otherwise known as generally regarded as safe. And this recognized. is recognized. Generally recognized, excuse me, generally recognized as safe. Um, so let's, uh, let's, how did that happen? First of all, it's been around since 1958, I think, or 57. And it's, it's applies to food additives, but it, it's, it seems to cover a very broad spectrum. Can you dissect that a little bit for us? Sure. Um, it covers food additives. And uh, in 1958, the Food Additives Amendment said that substances that had been in the food supply for a really long time and hadn't been known to cause any harm would be generally recognized as safe. And the manufacturers that were using those additives would not have to go through the dreaded food additive petition process, <laughs> which involves actually proving safety. Um, so that put in thousands of substances that people had been using and that were generally recognized as safe. And that included things like, say you were making something and it included um, even something as simple as flour or a food coloring. 
Oh, yeah. They included or, a lot of colors and flavors, flavor additives, color additives, mm-hmm. uh, caffeine for soft drinks. Right. Um, Things that people worry about now, like salt and sugar, that where there's a big effort uh, to try to take them off the grass list, um, so that people would have, so that manufacturers would have to put warning labels on or inform the public mm-hmm. or do something about them. And over the years, there have been examples of food additives that have been taken off the grass list. Not a whole lot, but there have been some. And recently, the uh, Pew Foundation and now the National Resources Defense Council has been mounting a major campaign to overhaul the grass list and the way in which the FDA regulates food additives, uh, particularly because of the new additives that are coming on the market mm-hmm. where um, the manufacturers under the law don't have to inform the FDA. All they have to do is um, put them out on the market. Yeah. <laughs> they, they really don't have to do anything else. Um, and a, a sort of over the years, a process has emerged where companies hire other companies to uh, review the safety of the additives that they want to use. So that's the um, chickens hiring the fox, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I was stunned. The FDA guidance conclusion says it is your responsibility, meeting the manufacturers, to ensure right. that substances added to the foods you manufacture or distribute, including non-dietary ingredients and dietary supplements, and that's another whole thing we'll talk about, comply with all the applicable regulatory requirements for substances added to food. I mean, there is no actual policing here, and that's what blew oh, my mind oh, about you grass. You have to wait for people to get sick. Yeah, exactly. So how did they... How... <laughs> um, you know, we don't use the precautionary principle. We don't believe in the precautionary principle in this country because it's too hard on business. Yeah. Um, instead, we have this after-the-fact way of dealing with a lot of food safety issues, which is we wait until uh, something makes people sick, and if enough people get sick, then the FDA uh, has the authority to go after them. Now, is this because the FDA is so grotesquely understaffed or underfunded? or they just don't care? What What do you think is, because really there are new things coming down the pipeline, as you alluded in the beginning. For example, nanotechnology, nanotechnology and nanosilver, which mind. scares Absolutely. the bejesus out of me. Um, that's been designated as generally recognized as safe, and yet no testing whatsoever has been done on that in terms of meaningful food safety additive testing. Well, presumably the manufacturers are making sure that it doesn't kill people, but I think there are real concerns about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's just not the way our system works. Our system works by, in the opposite of the precautionary principle, the precautionary principle says you test before you subject people to it. Right. Um, The way we do it is we do after the fact. Um, We put it out there. If it causes harm, we stop it. Well, in the case of, for instance, nanotechnology, um, I actually did a show about this a couple of years ago. It was really interesting. So they want to use nanosilver in food packaging. I'm sure you know all about this, Marion. And um, the concern is that the nanosilver particles will penetrate whatever the product is, say it's meat, for instance. They would put it on sort of one of those little papers that absorbs all the goo, and that would be impregnated with nanosilver, and then the meat would take that up and then 
nanosilver, they believe, can cross the blood-brain barrier. So, you know, how long would it take for somebody to develop some sort of disease from silver? Well, I don't think we have any idea. their brain, right. Yeah, we have no idea. Um, and so we're going to find out. This is a, you know, a major national experiment that, oh, that we'll find out. And the problem is that because people eat so many different kinds of foods and mm. there are so many different chemicals in the environment, pinning a problem down on one of them is very, very difficult. And it only can occur... Um, if the epidemiological investigations are really sophisticated and enough of them are asked, then um, you start looking at the kinds of problems that people have and seeing what they're eating and whatever. But people do a lot of things. Yes. And it's really difficult to attribute, especially diseases that have lots and lots of different kinds of symptoms. Right. It's very difficult to attribute them to one particular factor. I mean, it's uh, hard enough to trace a foodborne illness by that token, right? So then, oh, same and, thing. And, I mean, foodborne illness actually, you, you gotta, you have a chance yeah. if you can find enough people who can remember what they ate before they got sick. Um, then you're, you know, you then you can pretty well pull out of what they're saying. Um, what the most likely food candidate was for what caused the illness, but it's not easy to do, and it requires an enormous amount of legwork and a lot of very sophisticated uh, investigation and interviewing because yeah. people can't remember what they eat, oh, and they don't know not. what's in the foods they're eating. And also, so many people eat away from home. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge to it, because especially if you're a fast food consumer and you do that regularly, well, where are you? Where You know, you might have eaten at Jack in the Box one day, McDonald's the next day, Burger King the day after that. And you have no idea what's no in idea. the foods because you didn't make them. And, you know, it could be something in the sauce. It could be mm-hmm. something, you know, I mean, you just have no way of knowing. So these things are very, very difficult. And... You know, I, when I look at the whole food safety situation, I think the miracle is that not that there are hundreds of thousands of people who are getting sick every year, but that there aren't even more. I know, same here. We should be dropping like flies. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> there I really mean, thank is. Thank heavens for cooking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know. It does kill a multitude of things, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, cooking is really a great public health safety measure, although when it comes to things like nanotechnology, it does you no good whatsoever. No, that's true. And the other thing is is that, you know, so few people have an actual HACCP plan in the home, I've noticed, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the poor USDA just tries and tries and tries to get home cooks to use food standard food safety procedures. Um, I mean, you don't really need a HACCP plan. You just need to follow those few basic rules, and most people don't. And the uh, you know you can't see bacteria or viruses; mm-hmm. they're there. You you can't really see them. And if you didn't, as as I did um, in the eighth grade, my eighth grade science teacher had us all putting out petri dishes in our kitchens oh, and boy. seeing what grew on them. It was pretty scary. Oh my God, Mary! Yeah, that would be a cautionary tale you'd take with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I. Did. Yeah, that's right. Well, you, Let's hear it for eighth grade science. It was oh, terrific. If only they had that now. I mean, I don't even remember if my kid has taken science. You know what I mean? There is just mm. really, there is no science in public schools now. It's really sad. But to go back to the um, the FDA, uh, you know, basic sort of information and guidances about grass, which I just found fascinating. They have a 
at the end of it a disclaimer that I'm sure you've read that just blew my mind. It said, um, this guidance represents the Food and Drug Administration's current thinking on this topic. It does not create or confer any rights for or on any person. does not operate to bind the FDA or the public. You may use an alternative approach. Yes. If the approach you can do nothing if you want to. You can, exactly. I, you know, I'm just like, I don't understand. I don't get yeah. it. How does this well, happen? I think most, I mean, fortunately, most additives, as far as we know, don't cause problems, or they don't cause acute problems anyway, mm-hmm. whether they cause chronic problems over the long run. You know, I, we don't have the science on that. It's just too difficult to get it. And it's certainly difficult to get it if it's unregulated and if you don't know these things are there. That's right. Um, so the Pew Foundation and the Pew Foundation group that was working on this has moved over to the National Resources Defense Council, mm. and I understand they're coming out with a report this week that oh, is um, going to make recommendations and kind of pull the whole thing together. But they're working very hard on that. Right. But well, I, I read someplace this morning that they were coming out with a report. Oh, great. Well, one of the things that um, I wanted to talk to you about in terms of, like, when something gets uh, generally recognized as safe, uh, you know, disclaimer, I guess, or, or, you know, status, can it then be changed? For example, trans fats, um, which were approved, were are grass. And now, well, they were considered grass. Yeah, but now... I don't, th- I don't think they ever went through an approval process. Right, they were just considered grass, and now... Mm-hmm. Studies are finding that they are not actually grass right. at all. And the FDA has said that it's going to, has proposed to revoke the grass status. So they can do that and they do do that. Yeah, they, do, they can and they do. Uh, what's interesting about that is how hard the food industry is fighting it. And that makes no sense to me either. I mean, I understand that maybe this is a cheaper fat, but, uh, you know, just from the public relations point of view, it's got to cost you a couple of pennies. You would to make think. a change, yeah. Yeah, well, there are two issues. One is that there are naturally occurring trans fats, but nobody's really worried about right. those. But they do occur in animal products in very small amounts, um, and there's some evidence that they're not harmful if they're natural because they have slightly different configurations, um, and they're there in small quantities. Mm-hmm. So they're arguing that because you can't ever get rid of the trans fats that are naturally present in meat and dairy products, you should always allow an allowance. And they love the half-gram um, uh, wiggle room that the FDA now allows. Wow, amazing. What about things like sweeteners and artificial sweeteners? Those are also coming under a considerable amount of fire. I think they're probably in that NRDC uh, report that you just alluded to. Well, the sweeteners were actually tested by the companies Mm -hmm. and and had to go through an approval process. They went through food additive approval processes and were approved with the caveat that it's at current levels of intake, that they're safe at current levels of intake. A lot of people would disagree with that on the basis of their personal experience, but the the control trials don't show much problem. Uh, I mean, again, it's just messy scientifically, Mm -hmm. difficult to prove, and and it's hard to know how much sweetener people are eating. It's in everything now. Well, it is. And I, you know, one thing I've noticed, and I'm just going to veer off the topic for a second, but it does kind of relate to this, um, 
is that everyone is touting the sort of sugar-free diet. And I, you know, I see it all over, you know, the media, all over Facebook. Everybody's saying, oh, you've cut sugar out of your diet and you'll be, you know, live to be a thousand and never have another health problem in your life. And I don't understand how this, uh, you know, how, first of all, how do you cut sugar out of your diet when even if you don't eat candy or drink soda or eat processed foods, natural sugars occur. So what are they talking about? They're talking about added sugars. Just added uh, sugars. So you know, and I, I, I love added sugar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm greatly in favor of it. We know how to metabolize it. The issue is how much. Yeah. And even Robert Lustig, the physician at San Francisco, who is talk, who talks about sugar as poison. Yes, he certainly um, does. When gently pushed, will will say it's a dose related. Po- of poison and then discuss what he thinks a safe dose is and it's pretty generous if you're not a soft drink manufacturer right well in a soft drink um, you're it, drinking you know, for a cup somebody of sugar. during the day 50 grams he says 50 grams he's not going to worry about it all he doesn't think sugar becomes toxic until 100 grams uh-huh. um, that's 25 teaspoons oh my that's god quite a lot i would never eat <laughs> I mean, I guess if you eat a lot of processed foods, of course, all processed foods are made with tons of sugar and tons yeah, of salt. Yeah, and if you drink a lot of sodas. Yeah, and of course, you know, those of us who cook or more or less don't do any of that stuff. But, um, Mary, we're going to come right back. We have to take a short break now for a sponsor drop, but stay with me. And, okay, I will try. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, exactly. And listeners, stay with us, and we'll talk more about grass and other weighty topics with Marion Nestle. This one's called Piece of Your Pie by the band Snowmine. You're listening to What Doesn't Kill You on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. 
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn at the Heritage Radio Network. My guest is Marion Nessel, um, a frequent guest on my program and somebody who helps me untangle the naughty problems of the food industry um, when I'm particularly confused. And generally recognized as safe is one of those terms that has confused me for many years now. So um, we are dissecting that. And, and um, we were talking a minute ago before the break about Dr. Lustig, um, who has written extensively about um, you know sugars and various other forms of toxic components of processed foods. And he makes the point that um, before 1997, a food company had to petition the FDA to get a substance on the grass list, and now all it has to do is convene a meeting of scientists, basically paid for by the company, points out there's a, some, something of a conflict of interest possibly there, and that they consider the room and declare a substance as grass, and they don't even have to tell the FDA that they did it. So how did that change? How did we go from uh, you know sort of a slightly more rigorous process to a obviously much easier process in 1997, Marion? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that, because when the food companies convene their own panel of experts, those panels, uh, panels of ex- experts write a letter to the FDA, and the FDA actually reads the letter and either says it has no comments on it mm-hmm. or, se- or sends back comments, and in those cases, the companies withdraw the letter. And if you go on the FDA's website and look at what it's done, there are quite a number of those notification letters that have been withdrawn. Wow. And what kind of substances would those be for? Like, when when would a scientist say? Because I think one of the problems that Lustig brings up, and I think that that many people worry about, is that it's, for example, with the, in the case of sugar, that it's a matter of dose. That back in the day, it was this much, and so then it was generally recognized as safe. But is it still safe at the levels that we now apply some of these substances? Caffeine, for example, uh, with four locos, when that was withdrawn from the market because it was uh, apparently a lethal combination of caffeine and sugar, something like that. How, how does that, how do they figure that stuff out? Well, that was a special case in which um, caffeine had been approved by the FDA uh, at the levels that it commonly exists in soft drinks, which mm-hmm. is 30, which is around 35 milligrams for in a 12-ounce drink, which is really not very much compared to coffee or tea. Mm-hmm. So these are low levels, and uh, but they were never meant to be the high levels that are being put into sports drinks and energy drinks. And so when there were reports of deaths associated uh, with those drinks and whether the caffeine in the drinks killed these people or it was something something else, we really don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems unlikely to me. I, I mean, people have tried for decades to find things wrong with caffeine, and it's really hard. Because it turns out to do a lot of good things, right? Yeah, and it's really hard to find things that are wrong with it. You know, you know, and if if you're sensitive to caffeine, you know when you've had too much because you get shaky. Sure. And there certainly are doses that can kill you, but um, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, it's hard to know what happened. But in any case, the FDA had to investigate. Right. Um, and... One of the things that its investigation turned up was the large amount of caffeine in these drinks, and it, and that was never considered grass, only the amount that's in cola drinks. Uh-huh. 
was considered grass. Right. And, and so they have the greatly sort of... exceeded that. So mm-hmm. that suggests that if people are greatly exceeding the doses that were considered grass when you know the the designations went in that there could be other instances where people are getting far too much mm-hmm. absolutely i happen but to love those energy drinks know? how would we know exactly i know jack is laughing because i love energy drinks i use them regularly oh dear i know <laughs> marion what do you mean are they bad <laughs> I know that the first time, I will just tell you a quick, a quick anecdote, I'd never had Red Bull before when it first came out on the market and I was sitting on the bus and I was really tired and I drank a Red Bull and I literally felt as if my head, this kind of like wave of heat rose from my shoulders up through my head as if every pore or every capillary in my brain had just um, <laughs> well, <some laughs> had just been expanded. Like I know, I'm one of them. <laughs> You like it, all right. Yeah, I do. I love it. Actually, I think it tastes like bathroom cleaner, but I do love the effect. (laughs) Anyway, so um, when things, like when new things come down the pipeline, so like nanotechnology, just go back to that again for a second, because I know that there are other technologies that are being added um, to the foods that we eat, and, and there doesn't seem to be much of a testing process or regulation process, even for the manufacturers, and they don't seem to care. So I wondered what other technologies we should be aware of besides nanotech that you think might consider, might pose a problem coming down the, the uh, you know, going forward into the future. Well, that's the only one that I know of uh, offhand where there's, you know, a great deal of concern about it. I mean, every now and then, um, we have the additive or the contaminant or the chemical of the month mm-hmm. where everybody is really upset about it, like bisphenol A. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of concern about it, and there were countries all over the world that were revoking the status of um you know, various, the status of various things that had bisphenol A in it. Um, so you just never know which one is going to come up. It's uh, Somebody has to report problems mm-hmm. that are associated with that particular chemical or additive. Mm-hmm. And when they do, then it gets into the news and the FDA investigates and so forth and so on. But there's no incentive for mm-hmm. food companies to try to find something wrong with what no. they're using. All of the incentives are the other way. Right. And I wanted to ask you, since you referred to other countries, um, I, that was something else that occurred to me. I mean, since we import and export so many foods, um, what about other countries' guidelines about things like, I don't know, sugar, caffeine, trans fats, or nanotechnology? How do, we, how do other countries address the grass issue? And, and how do we, when we import a product... Uh, how do we recognize whether or not something they're making in, I don't know, Turkey, just for lack of a better idea, is, is definitely got additives that we consider safe? Yeah, I don't have the faintest idea. Yeah. Um, I know that the, uh, I know that, um, um, that the, European countries that are looking at the safety of all of these components are much more stringent mm-hmm. about, uh, not they'd use the precautionary principle. Yes, they want things proven safe before they put them into the marketplace. And so there are, I'm sure, lots 
that they don't allow that we allow here. I don't know what they are offhand. Yeah. Interesting question, though, because, I mean, we are such a global food economy and we do so much uh, backing and forthing. And there are so many other things that, for example, I was, you know, when I was supposed to do my pre-record this morning, I was going to talk about ractopamine and beta agonists um, with a scientist in Texas who has just published a paper that these are not safe for animals anyway. Um, he doesn't really discuss whether or not ractopamine residue is safe for humans, but uh, most countries ban it, including Russia and China, that couldn't care less about um, really the safety of their people, or at least haven't got the same quote-unquote safety mandate that we do in this country. So Yeah, I mean, the, the expectation here is that uh, it's safe until proven harmful. Yeah. That's the expectation. And if people aren't dying on the spot when they're consuming something, well, it's safe, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. Well, that's why I guess we should be grateful that they made E. coli an adulterant so that, or an additive. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I mean that. That was <laughs> because otherwise the only that would be generally regarded in which as safe. The FDA could go after mm-hmm. E. coli um, with real regulatory authority. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Was by considering it an adulterant. You're not allowed to adulterate food, and so the line between a safe additive and an adulterant is fuzzy. Yeah, it's, it's not a really clear line, and most food additives do not cause noticeable harm at the levels at which they're commonly consumed, whether they're consuming unnoticeable harm. We don't know. It's very difficult to prove anything safe. Yes, absolutely. But if it's causing unnoticeable harm, then who cares? Shouldn't right. we be worried? If you can't, if you can't notice it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's the food industry's argument. Yeah. It's, it's not causing any noticeable harm. Why are you bothering us? Yeah, right. Why are you trying to make us spend money on something we don't need to? Right. <laughs> and furthermore, uh, if people are dying because they're consuming our products, there must be some other reason mm-hmm. for yeah. it. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. So that's sort of the first line of defense. And then it means that the FDA, which is a beleaguered agency, yeah an agency in which Congress has systematically depleted its resources over the last 20 or 30 years. Yes. Congress doesn't like regulation because it's anti-business or perceived as anti-business, which I think is a very narrow way of looking at it. I think we need strong regulation, and it's much healthier for business in the long run because it makes the public trust business which yes. it doesn't now do, right. for good reason. Um, and it, it sets a level playing field for business where everybody has to play by the same rules. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. Certainly the matter of, of food, I, I, I don't think regulations, you know, I don't think you can have too many. Although I suppose there are people who are, you know, I mean, if you are working in a small business, niche market business, uh, regulations can be very crippling to you, but, you know. It's a, it's a difficult problem to solve, I think. It is indeed. Well, Marion, I guess we have to wrap it up here. Do you have uh, any upcoming lectures or appearances you'd like to tell us about? Um, yes, I'm speaking tomorrow <laughs> night in, at Montclair State. Excellent. What's your topic? Um, on food politics. What a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I'm going to George Washington next, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. next week, and also to Stanford. Oh, my God. Um, so tomorrow, next week's a big travel week. Yeah. Um, 
and there may be another couple of others tossed in there. But I list all of my appearances on my website, foodpolitics.com. And I recommend that people go and look at food politics at least once a week, just so you can stay abreast of, A, what Marion's thinking about, and B, what's really going on, because I find it an invaluable source of information, and I do I do check it out very, very regularly. Marion, oh, thank you so much for helping me understand grass, and I hope my listeners do. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Have a great week next week. Good luck with all the traveling. Great. Good talking to you. Likewise. It's always good. Thanks to my sponsor and thanks to my engineer. And we'll see you next week with another show. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.